Could you take uh, your Bible and open up to 1 Kings chapter 11? This is the last sermon in the series called Glory Days. 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 13. Before we get there, uh, I just have to say, even though it's been hot, I mean really hot, I did a wedding outside yesterday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it was hot. But I still love this time of year. I love to see the leaves change. I love the dryness of the air. I remember one time, it was around this time, my daughter Ginger, my oldest daughter, was four years old, and we took our dog into this beautiful patch of trees. The leaves were just changing. They had those fiery oranges and cherry reds. And we went deep into the woods just to go walking. And halfway in there, my daughter was stuck in all these thorns and thistles, and she had all kind of burrs all over her coat and in her hair, those big sticky round ones. Even with the beauty of a patch of woods in the fall, there's still thorns, there's still thistles, there's still prickly things. That's how I feel about this series in the Old Testament. We went through some of the greatest stories ever told. The story of David and Goliath is fabulous. The story of when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem for the first time. To me, that was overwhelming. But we have some dark and sticky parts that we have been through. In fact, even the last week, after three of my last sermons, some some dear friends came up to me and said, you know what, where is grace? Especially after my sermon on House of Blood. What was that? Man, that was dark. Why is it so dark? Where's the goodness? Where's the kindness of God? Because at times, some of these chapters are depressing. For many, the judgment of God seemed to be really emphasized in this series. And they said, what about grace? Where is it? Where is grace? Well, today... On our last sermon series, I am happy to tell you that's what it's going to be all about, is grace. That's the good news. The bad news is we have the thorniest section yet to walk through you've ever seen, and it's prickly. It's bad. That's why the title of this is a very uplifting title called Anger. Anger, which is talking about those things that kind of take away from our glory and make the Father angry. So if you can follow along with me, 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 13, our final series of glory days. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Well, they were princesses. That doesn't really help. That's a lot of wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, 
his God as with the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. The key verse is verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon. It's really the only verse we're going to look at. So when people wonder why Solomon was allowed to marry so many women, remember, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Last a uh, couple weeks ago, Jared said I'd explain how come God allowed wives, so many wives for David? How many for Solomon? The Lord was angry with Solomon. When Solomon worshipped Molech, Molech was a god that was made of bronze, and he stood like this, a bronze statue that stood like this. Underneath his arms was fire, kindled fire. And what they would do is they would take their babies and lay them on the arms of Chemosh to worship their false gods. And Solomon did that. How could God allow that? The Lord was angry with Solomon. And when it says angry, it means red hot fury. Psalm 50 says it's a tempest of fire. Well, it's verses like this, this idea that God gets angry, that some people think the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. Somehow in the Old Testament, he's, he's this primitive, small, immature, blows up at the drop of a hat kind of God. And people say in the Old Testament, Where is, where's grace? Where is grace? We have to answer this because this is in the Bible. Verse 9. God was angry. Even if you don't like it. Or you don't want to hear something. You want to hear something. I just want to, be, I want to feel good when I leave church. I want to be cheered up. This is still the truth. It's kind of like when we go into a beautiful patch of woods. My daughter still got caught in thorns. Still true. Truth does not change based on your appetite. Americans think it does. If Americans don't like something, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to believe that. But the Lord was angry with Solomon. 
Why? Why is he so angry? Well, the word for anger here is an Old Testament word, anap, which means furious. And there's two reasons the Bible gives. I found two places. The first reason, we found it in 1 Kings, it says because sin makes him angry. Sin is willful disobedience. When God says no, He says no, don't do that, and you do it, God gets a little angry. Look at Deuteronomy 17. We're going to keep going back to 1 Kings 11, but go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is back about four chapters in the Bible. The word Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. When the Israelites went through the desert, they were getting ready to go into promised land, and Moses is looking over the promised land, and he gives the law a second time so that they could live by this law. So before they go in to the promised land, if they just obeyed this law, man, things would go great. So here in chapter 17, we're giving some laws concerning the king. Listen to what it says. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Remember, this is how Saul came into the picture, the beginning of our glory days. It really started when the people said, we want a king. So we've been studying about the three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. There's some conditions for that king. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So they had to be Israelites, which they were. Now listen to 16 and 17. Pay attention very carefully to it. Verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So remember this. If you're king, number one, keep this, in, keep this in mind, don't get a lot of horses, especially from Egypt. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Okay, second thing. Don't get a lot of wives. That word a lot means many. And then the third one is, says, you shall, he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. It's not saying you can't have silver and gold, but excessive, like way too much. Okay, now let's go back to 1 Kings. But to do that, go to chapter 11 and then go back three verses, so that's chapter 10. And I want to start in verse 26. Do you remember the three things? Too many, don't get too many horses from Egypt. Don't get too many wives. And don't collect too much riches. Excessive. Starting in verse 26, 1 Kings 10, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the cephala. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. And Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. And a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women 
along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women. Many, we could say 700. I think that's more than many. So, Solomon, let's read Deuteronomy. Don't get any horses from Egypt. Not many. Oh, he only got 14,000 from Egypt. Actually, about 144,000 if you really want to know the true numbers. Solomon, don't get many wives. I think he dropped the ball on that one. And Solomon, don't have excessive wealth. It like was rivers in his time. So my question is, did he do it purposely to make God mad? What's wrong with him? Seriously. Imagine if you had a kid, and you go on vacation, and you say, son, I'm leaving. Don't have a party in my house. You go to your apartment in your holiday vacation. You turn on Facebook. There's 700 kids jumping on your bed while you're gone. <laughs> what are you doing? Wouldn't that make you a little mad? Now, God has no right to get angry. Come on. Just he needs to let me do whatever I want. God was angry with Solomon. Second reason, he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it kind of describes him as being a God that when other people are, when you're turned from other things from God, he's going to be jealous. And this jealousy is not our immature kind of jealousy. Oh, she got a rose. I've never gotten a rose. This isn't that kind of jealousy. This is the kind of jealousy when you're a pastor. This is the kind of jealousy where a spouse comes into your office and says, my wife's cheating on me. Man, what do I do? When, you, when the Israelites ran to other gods, they are committing spiritual adultery. Anger is, it's not irrational. It's the response of a sound mind when somebody leaves them for another lover. So God in His holiness both has a right and a duty to get angry. And out of his anger, anger is the internal feeling towards really what I would say turning from what's the greatest thing ever, which is him. And, it, and out comes the response of wrath. So we will define this a little bit. And So let's define anger and wrath. So why is he angry? Well, we have to know the definitions of anger and wrath. Before we go to the definitions... There's some groundwork the Bible always sets down about the nature of God. Psalm 103 says this about the nature of God. The Lord is merciful and gracious and He's slow to anger. So if His nature means He does not want to get to that point, He's slow. So that means if He's angry, there's got to be a real purpose behind it. He does not want to get angry but when people disobey and abuse his jealousy, they arouse his anger. You, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit in the wind. You don't pull the mask off the Lone Ranger. And don't make God angry. So what is anger? Anger is a righteous displeasure. A righteous displeasure at unrighteous behavior. It means God is right. When he gets angry when you do blatant wrong. The Old Testament uses the word anger on four different occasions. The same Hebrew word. Tell me, and I'm just going to ask you, I'm, not, I'm just going to ask you a question. Does God have a right 
is it logical for him to get angry in these four situations? Situation number one, it says he got angry. When Israel sent spies into the promised land, but they refused to take it because they were scared of the people. and They didn't think God could win. Second situation, when Moses was up on the mountain, he was only up there 40 days, the people got tired of waiting, so they made a golden calf and prayed to it instead, something they made out of gold. Third situation that made God angry, Israel offered their sons and daughters on the flame of Molech and Chemosh, and they gave their daughters to prostitution for the god of Ashtaroth. Fourth situation where God was angry, when Israel took over other nations and abandoned their old wives because they lusted after the new young women of the conquered nations. Question, does God have a right to be angry at those things? Or should he just be quiet and not say anything? Well, he has wrath for those things. And what is wrath? Wrath is God's righteous punishment for hearts that are unrepentant. Last year, I read of and then watched a tape of this man in Cleveland, Ohio, who was sentenced for life for killing three 18-year-old women. Three of the fathers came up to state their case to the judge because they wanted the death sentence. And to state that case, they read their reasons why. While one father was reading his plea to the judge, the murderer started laughing and smirking at the father. The man who killed his daughter was smirking at him. Made this father so angry, you can watch it on tape, he jumped across the courtroom, over the tables to attack personally this man who was smirking at him. It took the whole security team in the courtroom to restrain him. But this guy was full of wrath. Wrath is when God jumps over the table when mankind smirks at sin. Why is smirking at sin so bad? Because your sin and mine sent an innocent son, a perfect son, to die. So wrath is, it's appropriate. It's the only appropriate response to a murdered son. And so the sign of an unhinged God is right. And it's just. But somebody could hear all this and say, but where's the grace? Here you go again. Where, tell me, where is the grace? Well, here's my conviction. And, and I need you to listen real close. I believe the grace of God, especially in the United States, is so watered down. I think it's the greatest gift we've ever been given, the grace of God. But we don't appreciate it because we don't see it in light of God's severity of wrath. We don't see it. Let me show you. I'll, uh, I'll do a little, I was putting this together thinking, how do I explain this by picture? All right, so there's three categories. We're going to have wrath. Our work that we try to assuage God's wrath or make God happy, and then the grace that is needed to help me make God happy. So I think in America, honestly, 
we see when, when somebody sins, I think we believe God's rather indifferent to it. Like he sees it, but it doesn't bother that much. Kind of like a, like a match. That's how much fury he has. Just a little match. We say stuff like this. Boys will be boys, you know. <laughs> or uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just sowing my own. This one makes me crazy. You know, man, what happens in Vegas <laughs> stays in Vegas. Don't say that. Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand what you're saying? I know somebody that says, yeah, I don't care what I, if I do this, leave my wife do this kind of stuff, because I know God forgives sin. I had somebody say that to my face. To my face. Okay, so with wrath is indifferent, how do we, if, if, if God's just indifferent, how does, do mankind respond to it? I'll do some emojis, because that's how we speak today. Meh. Okay. It's indifferent. No big deal. All right, so if it's just meh, like I don't really need to do anything because he's a, God's kind of an old blind man, you know? He can get away with stuff. Sorry, I put my hand in front of the thing. So with uh, meh, what is needed to kind of blot out God's indifferent wrath? Just a drip of grace. Just drips. And grace no longer is really grace. It's, it's this nice word. It's a religious word. We use it a lot of times. That is so good. So full of grace, so much grace at that service. We even use it for how graceful people are. So it really becomes a word that doesn't mean anything. Sometimes my wife doesn't like when I say this, but sometimes I don't like that word special. Some people use the word special for everything. That's a special child. That was a special event. Well, when everything's special, nothing's special. Grace has turned into that. It's just kind of a non-meaning word. Okay, so... What's the next level? I think the next level, this is where most churches are at. We see sin as a, we disappointed God. So God's an angry parent. Now, I mean, I'm not going to use angry yet in the sense that I've been using it. God is just disappointed. You could have done better. You could have done better. So what we do is we button, button button our buttons, put on our ties, tighten our belts, and we use the law to be better. I'm going to show God I'm a better son than he thought I was. I'm tired of making God upset, so I will, I've got what's called legalistic determination to please Dad. I'm going to be better at going to church. I'm going to do my devotions so God's not angry at me. I'm going to do them, and he won't be as mad as me, at me as he used, used to be, and I'm going to, I'm going to tithe more. <laughs> tithe. Okay, so this, this is this determination. How much grace is needed for that? Just enough grace to do what you want to please God with. So a glass at a time. It's, it's kind of funny. when If you look at grace like this, it's sort of like if you ever have a son, you want him to take out the garbage, but he doesn't take out the garbage. So you get kind of mad at him for not taking out the garbage. And he says, can you take it out for me? It's kind of like asking grace for things you failed to do. And when you, when you take out the garbage as a dad, you're still kind of upset. So really, this grace never makes God happy, and you know it. It's kind of a fake grace. It's a... But what if, what if wrath is really anger at a murdered son, and it's fury, and every sin causes him to feel that way? 
then I'm telling you what, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I've got no, I got nothing. I, I can't face a God who's holy. I can't. So all I can do is I, all I can do is ask for mercy. And the moment I ask for mercy, it opens up grace that floods the world like this. Bam! Now that's a grace I can rejoice in. That's a grace that changes me. Go to Romans 5. We're going to stay, I'll just keep you in Romans. I want you to listen closely to this because it describes this grace in full. It's beautiful. Romans 5. Romans 5, and then start in verse 13. Let's start in 12 because it sets the, sets the basis. It's really easy to understand. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Meaning, when Adam sinned in the garden, he brought sin, like a virus, to this whole world. This whole world is on fire with sin. We just are. Verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Meaning, Sin was already there before Moses brought the law down out of Sinai. The purpose of the law is to reveal that sin is everywhere because I can't do the law. That song is so appropriate, it's not enough. I can't finish the law. Verse 14, Yet death reigned through Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one, meaning not only did Adam sin, and not only is it everywhere, but I do too. That's what's being said. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. What does that mean? This free gift, this gift, that's grace. This free gift. It's not like the sin. So Adam's sin was like the match that started the blade. So imagine you're in a forest, you're out in Wyoming, and you're putting out your fire, and you get in your truck, and there's a spark. And it's a tiny little spark, but that spark catches an ember, and that ember catches a tree, and then that tree catches acres on fire. How much water is needed to put out that fire? A lot. How much grace is needed to put out the fire of sin on the world? Oh. <laughs> A lot. This is grace, and it's amazing. That's what this is talking about. So don't you see the way you see grace is determined by the way you see wrath. I believe, personally, it's why the Old Testament's so dark. Man, when you start reading the Old Testament, it doesn't get better. And then you get to Malachi, and it's really bad. And then there's 400 years of silence. And silence is like the middle of the night when I can't even see. And then... Matthew chapter 1, 21, call his name Jesus. You want to know why you should call him Jesus? He's going to save his people from their sins. The light is come in darkness. Oh, that darkness is meant 
to prepare us for the light. Grace is only understood if we understand how dreadful sin and anger and wrath is. It's like I said a couple weeks ago, I got this from Luther, hunger makes the best cook. But Americans actually aren't hungry anymore. Sort of like trying to feed a steak to a kid that has just eaten cotton candy, circus peanuts, and Twizzlers. Here's the steak. But you make that kid wait, and you give him a steak, he's, oh, that's good. We have... We live in America where we're fed on the pablum, the Twizzlers, the cotton candy of go ahead and sin, God will forgive you. It's all right. Love wins. It's okay. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's cotton candy. And grace means nothing. But man, is God really angry? Where's the grace in the Old Testament? Did you know there is grace all through the Old Testament? It's bubbling up. It bubbles up all over. All over the place. The the whole sacrificial system is grace. The whole thing. He sends prophets to speak. Speak. Speak like Samuel. And then he sends Isaiah and Jeremiah to speak. That's grace. He sends promises that are incredible. It's all grace. It's all bubbling underneath the surface. To me, one of my, the grace, listen to this verse. I love this verse. And it uses that same word anger that we've been talking about. Listen to it. Isaiah 12, 1. Though you were angry with me, though God was red hot, furious, fiery at me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. It's ironic. The one who's angry at me becomes the one who comforts me. How? How does this happen? The question is, how does anger turn well there's a metaphor in the old testament i want you to think deeply in this because it's incredible seriously it's incredible and the metaphor is given for a reason you got to visualize you know you can read this later but in isaiah 20 uh, go ahead put it up there the metaphor is a cup of wine it's isaiah 51 17 also you can find it jeremiah 25 about 27 God says his wrath is like a cup of wine that is poured into a glass. And that cup is the sin of the nations. And they are going to have to drink all the way down to its very dregs. That means they have to drink it to its last drop. They have to. In Jeremiah, the people say, I don't want to drink it. And he says, you have to drink it. Now... If that's in your mind, turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And you've got to look at it this way because it's... This is a dark situation. The atmosphere is heavy, scary, I think worse than the scariest movie you've probably ever seen. The feeling had to be immensely terrifying. Begins in verse 36. Matthew 26, 36. It says, and read it slow with me. Because sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it real quick. You don't let the words soak in. Let these words soak in like blood soaks into a white t-shirt. Let it soak in. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let what pass from him? This cup. What cup? What cup? The cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. He did not want to drink it, but he drank it for you to its last drop. Some of you are like, well, what does that mean? What is in that cup? Go back to Romans. You've got to see this. Romans 3. This is, Jared and I were talking about this verse all week because it's, I'm so glad this, this verse is in the Bible. Romans 3, 23 to 25. You can say, this is the recipe of the wine that Jesus drank. Here it is. This is the ingredients of that wine. Romans 3, 23 to 25. Begins by saying, All have sinned. This is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody has contributed to this wine. Verse 24, and we are justified by his grace. That's a gift. That amazing grace is a gift through the redemption that's in Christ. So redemption means the the payment that was paid to set us free, or the the cup that was drunk. Cup of redemption. Now, here it is. Verse 25. What's in the wine? Well, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Here's what that means. Every sin that was committed before Jesus existed, before He came on the cross, is in that wine. So you can put it like this. Solomon and all his wives, David and Bathsheba, Moses and his murder, Noah and his drunkenness, the golden calf. The Israelites offering their children in the fire, Jesus had to drink that wrath. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Present time means this time we're in now. It also includes from the time he died to the time we are in now. Meaning, Jesus drank all the sin that happened after as well. So you could say like this. Jesus drank when you lied, swore, checked out porn, had sex before marriage. Jesus drank that wrath too. When he drank that wrath, all of it, do you know what it's called? It's called grace. It's amazing. It is amazing. So where is the grace? On the cross? That's grace. 
hanging on the cross, and it's not pretty. It's very bloody. That's his message of love. And this love, this love does not ignore, he, it does not ignore sin to make you feel good. It is a love that pays your price so you will be set free. It's like a doctor. He has a patient, comes into his office, the scans say his cancer, the doctor don't want to make him feel bad and says, you looks good to me. Go home. But the doctor I want is to say, you have cancer in your lungs. You're going to have to take this chemo, and you'll be fine, but it'll take probably a couple years. That's the doctor I want. So God's love is a love you can trust. It's a love that never ends. It's a love that's real, and it's strong, and it never fades away. It is not a love that simply makes people feel better and upbeat on a Sunday morning because that fades Tuesday afternoon when you have a migraine. God's love that turns away his wrath, I don't know how to explain it to you, but when you receive it, it reaches down into who you are and awakens something that you never knew before. And when it awakens it, I don't do things to try to assuage his wrath. I do things because I love him. That's it. It's a love that changes lives. So then we got to come to the final question. It's the only natural question, and it's very important. Is God still angry? So what happens if I receive His grace by faith, but I still sin? What if I still sin and I keep sinning? Is God still angry? It all depends. It all depends on how you use the word anger, how you define it. We have to be very precise with our words. Very precise. If we are talking about the type of anger that invokes wrath, the answer is no. <laughs> no, no. How do you get around this verse? Listen to this verse. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, listen very closely, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if I've received Christ, I'm in Him. The Spirit of God lives in me. If the Spirit of God is in me, there is now no condemnation. There are people that try to get around this. A lot of pastors and priests do because they want to make you obey. So they'll say, you better not do that, Johnny. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This verse says, if I receive Christ, there is now no condemnation. None. It's done. Exactly. We call that propitiation, satisfaction. God's done. However, there is what I would call the anger of a loving father. That's different. It's a different kind of anger. My dad really got angry at me a couple times. I mean, really angry. The kind of anger where, you know, fire is coming out of his eyes and smoke's coming out of his ears, and I run to my room because I want to escape his gaze. Only happened a couple times. But I knew something. Every time that happened, he was still my dad, and I was forever his son. I... At Moody Bible Institute, the very first class I had was called Spiritual Life and Ministry. The very first time I walked into this class, we put our books down on our desk, got out our notebook, put our pens right there, and our teacher was up there. He goes, 
write this. This is the very first thing I want you to remember and never forget it. And he said it so many times. I'm like, why is he saying this? But I get it now. Here's what he said. God is a person. God is a person. God is a person. He's a person. He is not a principle. He's not a set of laws. He's a person. So when I do some things that offend him, he responds like a person. He's my father. He gets angry in a different way as a father would. Look at how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews writes it like this. The Lord disciplines and chastises those he loves. So let's go through these words because people can say, where is, where is the grace in this? It's all over the place. The word discipline is born out of grace that wants to make you a better son or daughter. It means to instruct when your child is acting ignorant and foolish. Every good person, every good parent uses discipline to instruct. The parent that doesn't, we call negligent. What about the word chastisement? There's no grace in there. No, it's all over that word. This means to take remedial punishment to change my behavior, not retributive intent. Retributive intent means you're just being punished to pay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking remedial punishment. That means chastisement could be whipping or whatever to to change my my behavior god will use trials and tribulations to bring his people back to him if they go astray look at it like this listen very closely imagine if you will you were a parent of a very high energy three-year-old girl every time she was outside she'd sprint down the driveway the only problem is your driveway runs into a freeway where sometimes cars run 55 miles an hour. Let's say your child begins to run out towards the street. As a good parent, you tell them to stop and come back. But in their mindlessness, they just keep running. La, la, la. La, la, la. They keep running. Zoom. Zoom. So what do you do? You catch them. If they don't listen to you, you catch them. If it's the third or fourth time, you give them a swat on the butt. Uh-oh, he's talking about corporal punishment. Yes, if you're a good parent. It makes them think twice about doing that again. Ow, that hurt. Yes, don't, don't do that. Cars are speeding by. Now, imagine your neighbor also has a very high-energy three-year-old girl. Every time they let the child out, she also bolts down the driveway to the highway. What if her parent is the type of parent that goes inside after letting them out? What do you do? What do you do if you see the child running down the driveway? You probably yell. Do you grab them and spank them? You're not their parent. Maybe you ha might have to if they keep running, but really you know I better not do that. I could be in all kind of trouble. Now let's freeze frame at the moment where you're spanking your kid while the neighbor kid's running free, freeze frame it. At that moment, who looks like they are being treated more harshly? Your child. In reality, they are being shown love. 
So in other words, you could put it like this. God knows how to keep his children from playing in the street. And when he does, even though we may not like it, we call that grace too. That's grace. Glory days has come to its end. The kings had their high moments. Eventually they ended up being just as messed up and just as twisted as we are. But they did do one thing. They pointed us to the need of a king, a real king. Because there is a real king. There's a real king who's never sinned, he's never lied, and he's never let us down. Psalm 2 says this about the king. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's Psalm 2. It says two things, kiss the son or get his wrath. What does kiss the son mean? Don't kiss the son like Judas where you don't mean it. Kissing the son means show him loyalty and reverence, show him homage, pay him what he deserves. And if you don't, it says careful, the fire may be already kindled. Let's pray.